testing, testing. I feel completely conversational now. That's how I talk to my kids. There we go. I'm getting some results. Where is your French homework? <laughs> Did you forget to hand your math in again? It's been a while, kids, but here we are. Welcome to the fourth episode of Oots, or Out of the Studio, produced by GDC Manitoba. GDC is Canada's national certification body for graphic and communication designers, and this podcast is here to interview graphic designers and creatives from Manitoba and hopefully across Canada about their work, their lives, and what makes them excited about good design. My name is Leif Norman, and I'm here to ask a series of questions and hopefully get some unexpected answers. Our guest today is Kirk Warren, who's a graphic designer, illustrator, educator, and the principal of Kirk Warren Studio. Kirk Warren completed his undergraduate degree, a BFA Honours in Graphic Design at the University of Manitoba School of Art in 1992, winning several awards as a student. Kirk worked at Grand Design for three years before leaving to start his own studio and do freelance work for several local studios. Since then, he has created strategic partnerships within publishing and both interior and landscape environmental designs where he enjoys the multidisciplinary approach. In 1995, Kirk Warren started teaching graphic design at the University of Manitoba School of Art, and in 1999 started teaching in the Faculty of Architecture, eventually becoming coordinator for communications. In 2000, he became area chair for graphic design. He was an assistant professor slash area chair for graphic design at the University of Manitoba School of Art until his return to professional practice. In 1996, Kirk started working with illustration agency Rita Gatlin Represents in San Francisco. He no longer employs an agent, but still considers illustration as a significant part of his work. He completed a master's degree, MA in illustration at Syracuse University in 2003. Kirk Warren, through Kirk Warren Studio, has worked on numerous publishing projects, corporate identity campaigns, and environmental graphic systems, including the 1999 Pan Am Games and the Sign System for the Winnipeg Trails Association, which won recognition in several international design awards, annuals, and exhibitions. Kirk Warren was born and raised in Flin Flon, Manitoba, and now resides in the Wolseley area of Winnipeg with his partner and two children. He spends a lot of time looking and thinking about what he sees. What would you have done if you weren't a graphic designer? Ooh. Uh, I'd be a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Single which panel is, or strip? Strip. Uh, not comic book. I did do a single panel, and there's a book that's floating out there that I did and was published a long time ago. Um, but strips were always my favorite. And uh, I think I think it's a phase that everybody went through. But I will tell you, I would tell you my one really great uh, comic story. I was doing a comic for just for myself, and I was trying to break in. And so I went and I put something into uh, the free press, and I went and met. They used to have a comics editor back then, um, and I sat in there. We we met, and we had a great meeting. And he said, "Well, here I'm going to give you some stuff." And he gave me these promotional packages that the syndicates, which distribute comics to newspapers, would um, uh, send to, to newspapers to, to, to you know, pick up their strip. And one of the packages, Evan will be happy, um, my most prized is the, the original package for Calvin and Hobbes. Wow. And he had this package. One was for, one was for a comic. It was a, it was a new uh, Jim Davis 
thing called, I think it was called U.S. Acres, and it was terrible. I remember that. That's right. And, and I still it's have a it. And a yeah, yeah. And it's, I still have it, but it's away in a drawer. I don't want to give it up because it might have some actual value, but, but the Calvin and Hobbes one doesn't go too far away. And I remember looking at this and thinking two things. Number one, uh, uh, it's over for me. And number two, this is amazing. This is absolutely amazing because yeah, he it was could draw. This well, not that just <laughs> not, not not that he could just draw, but it was it was it was it was whole. I mean, it was this wonderful self-contained world. Um, this it, you know, in between this kid's imagination and his real life. Yeah, it was fully fleshed and, out. Yeah, it didn't require a whole lot of pop culture references. What was going on politically? Or anything like that. And so it was this wonderful, I guess the term would be hermetically sealed world where this took place. And that was the amazing thing. And he could draw like an angel. Yeah. Uh, it was just really, really cool. And Berkeley breathed. Breathed? Yeah. Breathed. I, would say, I would say I would say that was, the, those those are the two main oh, ones. Yeah. Um, no, 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 no. The, the great thing about, the great thing about Bloom County was that uh, that you could take the first three panels and that would be the joke. But then then the the last panel was kind of like the joke epilogue yeah. where it just sort of added a joke on top of the joke and it just stinger. it just made it. Yeah, it just there was a great follow through with that. So, so you would have been. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, if, if I was going to go and do anything right now, if someone dropped, you know, I don't know. I think the last time we mentioned the number of $5 million would be a kind of okay because that, that would be buffer. Um... <laughs> I, yeah, I would do that. And so, is this I what you wanted? That. Like when you were eight years old, or something? Like this you, is when I was eight years old. Yeah, you I mean, were I mean reading, the, reading through the comics. You know, I think, I think, I think first, I think first. You know, of my generation, it was being an astronaut. I was born in '63. I watched the first, you know, man walk on the moon and and all that stuff. And so, I remember riding. We were riding our bikes to go watch our black and white TV, eating these snacks. There's something space snacks, and they came in a tube and. You know, it was the late '60s. Tang, Tang was yeah. Big Tang big. was very big then. If you have a very dirty dishwasher, put Tang in the dispenser and put it on a cycle. It will clean your dishwasher. It won't make it orange. There you go. This is why people listen to podcasts for stuff like this. You heard it here first. Though. Yeah, Tang. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I think you know, you know, astronaut, you know, out of reach for most people. But yeah. I would say cartoonist came in, and I think. You know, when it really, really bit, I was watching something on CBC, and this was back, I grew up in Flin Flon, we had one channel, so that was it, and there was a show about Peanuts and Charles Schultz, and he went up to a blank piece of paper, and he just started drawing the characters, and it was the equivalent of a magician conjuring magic before your very eyes, and it was really absolutely amazing. There's something about black ink on white paper that has never left and yeah. I think that's the, the probably the purest simplest most direct way to to tell something and to this day I still usually work out my designs um, in black and white and block things out in forms because if, if I can nail that then I can get everything else for sure so, so what do you think makes for bad design you know bad design is stuff that's out of context so I mean, you know, if, you know, uh, if I go to fast forward to what would be the you know one of the pieces of advice I would give to a designer, it would be that the solution is found in the problem. 
and it probably took about three years working in design for me to figure that one out. But I would say that, you know, that if you look within the problem context, that the solution is there. I think when people reach outside the problem, um, try to shoehorn it into a style or a historical period, or usually it starts with, I like the way this looks, or I like this period in history, or I like this. There's nothing bad about that period of history. I just don't think it can be as much as it can be. Right. I've, I've, like you're talking about, say, someone says, well, I really like the uh, vaudeville-style posters, and so they just take that feel sure. and slam it onto like a menu sure, in a restaurant, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, but I think, you know, if you, th- if you take something the vaudeville and you do it for, you know, a metal show, there's something more interesting there because, the, you know, the visual contrast is interesting. But, I mean, that being said, there is enough stuff in the problem for you to come up with a solution, and I think that's when you get the best the best designs. And you know what? If you design in the moment, and I know that people try to design for history, you know, we're all happy when we do projects that live beyond us, but you can't, you can't do that. You can't think that way when you're doing it. You have to just design in the now. You know, designers are part of the larger creative culture. And so what we do is we create content. We help to create culture. And if we go back and we you know, take a style from the 1920s or a style from the 1950s or something like that, then what are we really saying? We're just, we're just... It's just a throwback. We're throwback. It's, we're just simply restating. It's just, you know, when it's really bad, it's just one step away from plagiarism. Well, there's the three I's. You know, these there's the innovators. Yeah. There's the imitators, and then after them are the idiots. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid two of those. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, is that you know we're creating, we're creating language, we're creating culture, and so I don't go out there and think, well, I'm going to add to visual culture today. Um, but I try to come up with solutions from the problem context. And, uh, you know, I was out at, uh, over beers with friends at Barnhammer, go to Barnhammer, uh, on wall. Tasty beer. Tasty beer. Um, and we we're just, we we're just talking. He works at U of M Press. I do some covers for U of M Press. Um, but he's talking specifically about covers that I've done for State University in New York. And he said, I'm looking at, I'm looking at your website. I'm taking a look at all the stuff and um, everything looks different. There's no connection. And, you know, if you really, really look at it, there may be some common themes, visual themes that are there that maybe tie back to things that I was inspired by or that are there's sort of just a linger there you know in, in, in my in my design DNA um, but you, you approach each thing individually absolutely yeah you know I'll get a text and I'll look at it and I'll ask lots of questions about it and and then I end up coming with a solution that works just for that and you know I think when I look at them, from now, looking back in the past, I see some that are, I see are stronger and some that are 
well, not so strong. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we have preferences. You know, we all have our favorite children. Um, but the reality is, is that, that I know that each one of those was done the same way. I took a look at the problem, and then out of that came, came a design. I didn't go look in a magazine. I didn't go look in a book. Um, I didn't go and look at you know someone else's designs. I didn't go online and look at you know the 50 best academic covers of 2016 to try to find you know something there. Yeah. Um, there's this artist who I quite like who does a lot of work with just black felt pen, and she basically intuits the forms as she's going along and she says you know the pen know where, knows where to go and so really all I have to do as a designer is just start yeah, I just simply just have to it. start yeah, and that's, that's it and then once I start and you're right yeah it is tough um, then then I'm good so who else would, would be your inspiration besides you know well you know I mean Jim Henson you know when I went when I ultimately went to art school uh, to do design, I really didn't know about design. I basically wanted to be a children's book author. I wanted to take the cartooning that I was doing at the time. I tried to, to make it as a cartoonist on my own for about five or six years, um, and I thought I'd stop when I was about twenty-five. Uh, you know, at the ancient age of twenty-five, and uh, and then go to school and and try something else. Um, and what happened was is just probably the year before that, maybe when I was 23-ish, maybe 24, I did, I thought I'd do one more cartoon and, um, and get it out. And what happened was, was that uh, um, it was picked up by a syndicate, King Feature Syndicate out of New York. And so we, we tried to develop something, but over a chunk of time, nothing was happening. And, and maybe after all those years of, of, of writing because it is kind of an arduous task of you know, you write and you write and you write and you write and you draw and you draw and you draw and I just sort of felt tapped and I guess maybe I just maybe needed some more experiences in my life something I don't know right, right a change right. a break um, I decided that that was going to be it and I was going to stop so I really didn't know coming to university what design was and I didn't really think about doing it it just sort of got pegged but I will say when I first started to pick up on it um, specifically, it was 1981 or 82. I was at Red River studying civil engineering technology, uh, <laughs> which didn't work out so well. Um, but I went to Record Baron on Grand Avenue, and at that time, there wasn't a whole hell of a lot in that corner of the city. I think probably below, I think Kennison just kind of went to Grand Forks, maybe, and that would be just about it. It just or or Barren Prairie or and stuff like that or farmland. But I, went, I remember going to Record Baron and I went to go look at the rec, to go look at records because I wanted to buy something new. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, it just stood out. It just it simply grabbed me. Was orchestral move, maneuvers in the dark, architecture and morality, and and I bought it. I didn't know what they sounded like. Um. But I just picked it up just because I liked the look of it. Everything was wrapped in plastic. This was nothing that was going to be played on the radio or any radio station I was listening to in, you know, in 81, 82. Um, but I loved the design of it. I don't even know if I consciously loved the design. I just loved it. I loved the way it looked. It was different. It was, it was different. It was different. It was different 
but there was just something about it that I liked. And then when I listened to it, the music tied in with the design. So I saw it as the design and the content as a whole thing. Probably so for the first time. See, you could feel the designer's yeah, I could, hand. I could feel the, feel, feel the connection between those two things. And, of course, at the time, you know, I'd go over the liner notes like crazy. Um, and, and there was the name of Peter Seville. And, and as I would go along and I would buy stuff, whether it was New Order or Joy Division or whatever, I would see the name Peter Seville, Peter Seville, Peter Seville. So Peter Seville certainly absolutely one of the touchstones. Uh, does it show up in my current design? Probably because I like still like hard edges. I like I like to play um, photographic forms against sort of solid color graphic forms. Um, I like space. I like room to breathe. And space is really important to sort of juxtapose collections of forms like type and image and graphics. Um, I'd say probably the next one would be. Uh, Von Oliver or 23 Envelope or Von Oliver and Chris Biggs of 23 Envelope who are doing, they're the house designers for 4AD. So Cocteau Twins and On to Pixies and all that stuff. And and from that, it was just like the density, the layering of imagery, um, the juxtaposition of found images and found objects and found type. Um, to again create this whole, which was very often at the time because it was the house sound, quite ethereal. Um, and again, it tied very, very closely to the music. Or in terms of the Pixies, it was kind of, you know, dirty and angular and edgy, um, stuff like that. So I would say those are those are the two designers. Even though there's there's a whole host of other things they sort of discovered. And keep finding along the way. Well, re- record stores are a full, full yeah. And I think you know, I think one of the things. yeah, I think one of the questions that I looked at that was going to be asked was, you know, can you recommend a book? And there are there are things, but I would say for me as a designer in my growth, it was record covers. Yeah, you could it was it was album get a art. good education. Yeah, of yeah. the good, the bad, and the yeah. ugly just yeah. by going through. Yeah, these uh, absolutely. And the stu- even the stuff that you think is ugly is probably contextually appropriate. It maybe just doesn't tie into you. And that's there's another lesson there that's saying that not every design is for you. That design speaks to a particular audience. So while, you know, I was never a big fan of Yes or the album art, um, it didn't speak to me. I wasn't its audience. And I wasn't the person who was supposed to be picking up the message anyway. I have huge respect for the work. You know, the, the, the illustrator and the designer and stuff like that. But it just didn't speak to me, and that's that's design. Design speaks to you know very specific audiences. Sometimes they're large, sometimes they're small. So do you, uh, when you're trying not to think about design, do you go to record stores? <laughs> do you go for a run around the block, or what do you do? Yeah, Apple Music kind of killed my trips to the oh. music store. <laughs> um, but uh, and I tend to dive deep there. But I but I still go through and I still flip through, and I think it's I think it's uh, you. My muscle memory is is built around going to a record store and flipping through LPs and and just looking. Mm-hmm. And I would say that would probably be my my second bit of advice is that it's it's better to be better to be lost than found because when you're lost you're looking. And so when you're going through and you're flipping through those discs and you don't know what you're looking for and you find something that is a real find. If you go and you pick out something 
you're looking for something specific and you find that, well, that's good too. But I mean, it's not like you really found anything. So, you know, when you go out, just look, just look, keep looking. I think in my bio, it says at the end, um, uh, something about, you know, looks around and thinks about the stuff that he sees. (laughs) As that would be a recipe for any artist. Yeah, I think I think it's, you know I just want to keep things really really open. I don't want to be locked in. I don't want to be locked into a particular style. I don't want to be locked into particular subject matter. I'm very very lucky in the projects that I work on right now that are they're they're wildly diverse and they force me to never be in a comfort zone. Right. Do you ever go back to Flintwell? Yeah, I, I go back less now since my mom passed away in 2013. But I I try to go at least every summer. And we still have lots of connections up there. And what I really like to do is I like to go climb on the shield rock. Um, it was where I played when I was a kid, scrambling up rocks. And my brother and I would take, you know, paper bag lunches up there that my mom would make back in the day when parents didn't worry about their kids. Yeah, as long as they come back. At we five. had we had an immense amount of freedom, oh, yeah. uh, an immense amount of freedom to risk our lives on a daily basis. Um, Wait, are those coyote tracks? No. Uh, so uh, we would go and just get away. And when we had our kids, when our kids were small, it was great to take them and climb on the rocks. And we still sometimes do that, though they'd rather grab a soccer ball and go find a field and, and kick the ball and kick the ball and kick the ball. But, right. we, but we do do that. And it can get in touch with some of the things that kind of shape me. That's very cool. Yeah. So what do you have in your uh, book collection? Like what books do you have for reference? Uh, boy, it's it's pretty broad. I mean, we talked about the Calvin and Hobbes promo. Um, I mean, I have everything from, from, from uh, you know, comics to uh, design monographs. So, you know, the things that lots of designers would have, say a Mueller-Brockman or um, Paul Rand to um, things that are sort of more unique. So uh, German designers who created early iconography in the 1910s and 20s, well, not iconography, but basically early you know, corporate branding, mm. um, stuff like that. It's really neat to see where those things come from. Uh, to lots of books on illustration, because I work as a designer and as an illustrator. Um, did my undergraduate in design, did my master's in illustration. Um, so I have lots of things on illustration and everything from, you know, you know, pen and ink illustration, you know, you know, like cartoony stuff, stuff that you would see in the New Yorker to stuff that's very sort of graphic and kind of punchy and very contemporary. Um, so there's broad range of stuff, but I would say that my head doesn't really live there. I mean, I really treat it like a library. And in fact, I call it the you know like, I call it a living library, and I do the same thing with music as I do with books. And that is, when something new comes in, something old has to go out, or maybe not so old. Maybe it just didn't have very long life on the shelf. There's some some things that I've had that I've had for decades, and then there are things that um, that maybe will go out that have been there for a year, and said, yeah, you know, it's time to go. Well, that's good discipline. I just I can never get rid of books. Well, I have I have very limited space on my shelves, and if mm. you if anybody has sort of cleaned up after uh, a house, or cleaned up a house where someone's lived for fifty two years, yeah, you 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 get 
uh, it in your head that maybe collections are not a good thing. <laughs> well, I did have to just move recently. And, uh, <laughs> my girlfriend said that she packed up 10 boxes of vinyl records and 25 boxes of books. So, yeah, that was enough. Yeah, my dad, my dad had 70 boxes of model trains. There, I think at the last bit of the collection that went away about three weeks ago, there were five Rubbermaid tubs of die-cast cars. Um, you know, so everything from mini dinky Duplo from the sixties, Matchbox, yeah. vintage Hot Wheels, yeah, stuff. Wow. yeah, vintage Hot Wheels stuff, and I did sell that, and that was the end of a four-year, a four-year run of getting rid of stuff. So I, le- I, the stuff that I've got, is stuff that I look at frequently. That's a good way of doing um, it. The stu- and, and you know, and there's a lot there. I mean, I don't really have to buy another book. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I really. There's, you know, if I go to go look for something, I can usually find it online. So the books that I have are books that I want, and I'm always getting rid of stuff just to make up room for stuff that does come in that's new. Right, right, right. So is that how you find balance in your life by kind of keeping regulation on the ins and the outs? Of yeah, I would say. I would say uh, balance. Always a bit of work involved. Uh, between kids and work and um, and the creative and family and their schedules and my stuff and and I tend to be one of those people that has you know work kind of organically intertwined with everything else so I squeeze things in when I can and I can easily turn things on and turn things off I will say that one of the things that did sort of bring balance like, when I was teaching the Faculty of Architecture, I um, I did sketch camp. Uh, so I'd take students, you know, about 100 students out to um, sketch camp for uh, about five days, which is sort of uh, an adventure in itself. Uh, they'd all be uh, in between first and second year. So it'd be the first, basically the first week of their second year. And and I would teach I teach a class and I remember when I had to go do it I thought oh yeah we'll just go out there drink smoke cigars and have a great time and and that and we'll draw and that sketch camp and they said no you've got to teach something I'm, oh man what am I going to do <laughs> um, and then a friend had loaned me a book uh, Wabi Sabi for artists designers poets and philosophers by Koran. You can go search for that on Amazon or your local bookstore. We'll put a link. Um, and Wabi Sabi is a Japanese aesthetic uh, philosophy of where you pair things that are, say, finished with things that are rough or things that are new with things that are old. That you design things to um, change and evolve over time. And it sort of tied in with when my dad was diagnosed with his first round of cancer and at that time I was juggling a bunch of things I was teaching in 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 two areas of university the school of art and the faculty of architecture I had my own design business in Winnipeg and had the Pan Am Gaines as a client and I had an agent in San Francisco and I felt like I was at the spy a spider at the center of my own web just seamlessly flawlessly juggling all these things and then my dad's cancer came along and all of a sudden reality kind of set in and then I came across this book just as when I was doing stuff for for sketch camp and I it just all seemed to connect um it 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 made me think that you know design has a life 
Um, you know, it has a beginning, a middle, and end. I was always sort of very resistant to doing design that would be tossed away in landfill. So I've kind of focused on on things like books and magazines, publications, um, environmental graphics that have a life that they can go a little bit longer. Have you ever done a record cover? No, I haven't. Oh my goodness! No, I you haven't. Need nor to do a nor, record cover. nor a CD cover. <laughs> Uh, Cassette, eight track. Nothing, nothing to do with music. It just never came up. It just never you came find up. Yourself a I know, you know what? I know a producer, and we did talk about it, Murray Pulver. Um, <laughs> and we did talk about it one time, but it just, you know, it just never happened. It was just one of those things where, you know, the feeling was there. Heck, even, all the emotions even were there. I've but done a record cover. I did the photography and layout. <laughs> I, like I'm just a photographer. But Come on, you know, but it never happened. It never. <laughs> it never happened. It just simply never happened. And you know what? And I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm totally totally okay. okay with that. But but what happened was was it came up and I I, just, I took this book and I compa- you know combined it with um, I think it you know Japanese brush drawing and there was a bit of. You know, haiku poetry, which when I when you look at it in a really critical way, is focusing on the moment. Um, and and that term that we discussed before, which was being present. Um, and this was before I had kids, and and this is something that I've really tried to live by since that point in time. I went and did this at the sketch camp, and I thought, yeah, I'd get a few people who would be mildly interested and. And drawing with a bamboo brush, and we couldn't even get really good ink, so we had like Waterman's fountain pen ink, which was actually kind of a cool effect when you put it down with a brush. But um, there was sign up morning, and I had like it was packed, and I thought, oh wow, I guess they just kind of want to get it out of the way, you know, and go on to other things that are more interesting. And then, and then I did one another day, and it was packed too. And then I thought someone said we should do something, and even that was packed as well. Thought, Holy crap! <laughs> And I thought, you know, this is, you know, it's on something. And it just became part of my teaching, became part of the way I, I see things. And I, and I, since then, I've seen design in that way as in a continuum of, of life. And was that what the students liked about it? Yeah, I think so. They were, they were getting no or very little in the way of, of Eastern philosophy in, in, in their education at that, at that time. And they, they went to that right away. And what's cool is, is that, you know, there are students doing out there, doing stuff right now and... And I wonder if for the work that they do is that, you know, yeah, we're not going to do urethane the floors or we're not going to finish off. We're going to leave it raw. Did it come from there? The roots there? Mm-hmm. Um, it's stuck with some of them in the way they work now. And I think that's really kind of neat. And I've connect, connected with a bunch of students since then. And they just love that. They just absolutely love that. And so it was just the right time for something like that. And it was the right time for me. Shortly after that, there was lots of life stuff that happened. And having that kind of understanding put it all into some perspective it didn't you know i mean you could be angry or you could be bitter but this was this was just life and this these are the things that happen in life um and when our kids came along it was about being present and about you know in terms of doing design when a client throws a you know a design project and that you've never done before or a subject matter that's like off the wall you have to be kind of present. And that's why I think I've always loved jazz. Um, you know, it's there's this song that's there that all the performers know the song. But at each point, the performers play on top of it and they play over it. And you understand the structure is still there and it's something they're going to come to at the end. 
but for a period they kind of wander off and sometimes you're not sure if they're ever going to find their way back but you do and so in a design process I very often am working on things and I have no idea where things are going to go and there are points where I think this is terrible and there, there are periods of profound self-laceration I will tell you right now uh, there's blood all over the walls but in the end it, it pulls together well, that's what comes with experience, and the jazz metaphor is perfect because the reason that those geniuses like Coltrane can go off a million miles and then come back, find their way back, is because they trust themselves, and that's something that a young student, I think, it's very difficult to, to teach yeah, that. I think I think that's the thing that, you know, I, 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 I joked around uh, Evan and I, that would be Evan Coos, and I were joking around back Evan and Coos, forth. Evan ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Um, we're emailing back and forth and I said I said yeah we, we have the wisdom but the kids have all the knowledge um, or they <laughs> wait, have wait, or, what does that mean and they have all the skills well you've got the skills that you need now and stuff like that but we have a kind of perspective that can only come with time and and you know I, I would never you know try to sort of hold that over anybody and it, and it comes up in conversation. And, and the funny thing is, because I communicate with a lot of former students on Facebook and stuff like that, and it went from you know helping them out with stuff they were doing in school to uh, helping them out at the beginning of their careers to uh, seeing their ultrasounds <laughs> online <laughs> and giving them advice as new parents or what do you do when you know your two-year-old is going bonkers and stuff like that you know again it's that part it's part of that that continuum mm -hmm. I, I see don't see design as separate from that I, I see it as completely intertwined in all those things mm -hmm. and very part much part of my life and I think design is a part of life we see it all around us it's probably it's probably the creative form that we interact with the most every day. But it's and we visible. All, yeah, and, and it's, it, a lot of time it's visible, but it, when it works best, it's invisible. When it fails, we're, we're entirely aware of it. Right, it jumps right out at it's you. It's absolutely obvious. You yeah, know, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think... Like the, the most recent... Fail. I think everyone thought it was a fail. Was the London Olympics logo? Everyone seemed to judge yeah. that, those weird, the jagged. What was it? Twenty twelve. Yeah, it's just a jagged. Yeah, mass you know, I I think somewhere there, there's a creative brief, and there's probably a whole lot of people who worked on it that weren't happy, but they did what they had to do because that's what was happening at the moment. Yeah, or remember, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. I think, I, and I think there's too much, you know, posting of logos online and everybody taking pot shots at them and they don't understand the design brief and again yeah. they weren't there for the context yeah. and every designer is part of that so there's a budget there's a client um, there's a communication over back and forth about what the needs are and stuff like that and yeah. you know in earlier in my career there were weird things that happened you know where clients would argue at the table you know father and son president and vice president where they weren't talking to each other, so they'd talk to me, and I would have to say, will you tell my son, the vice president, um, and then you know it would turn around and he'd go, you tell my dad, the funny. president of the company, to where, where now when I work with people, um, 
and it's probably again because of experience they're all peer relationships um, I don't work for anybody I work with people um, if I don't want to work with somebody I don't work with somebody if I want to work with somebody I'll work with them and then when I when I talk with them I, I do whatever I can to get a spot at the table as early as possible so that design can be part of it now my price will be my price I just think it's important to have someone there with that perspective early in the process because I think good design, good design thinking, good design process can save you money and can save you time. The more knowledgeable heads you have at the table, the better the end result is going to be, pure and simple. All right. What question do you wish I had asked? Are you happy? <laughs> Did it all... Is it all what you dreamt it would be? Would you like ice cream on that? <laughs> um, it's nothing like I thought it would be. Um, the technology has changed. I mean, I've been through multiple phases of, of, of media shifts and changes. Um, and I've seen... You know, letterpress when it was actual, real letterpress where it was wood type and letters made of lead, individual letters made of lead or blocks of lead. Typecasting machines. That's it. Not linotype. We were Not linotype. Typecasting type machines. <laughs> and, and, and they'd pour the lead and stuff like that. So it was that to, um, you know, all the kids today talking about letterpress where it's actually, you know... A metal plate that's or yeah. a, in the nineties, all a that stuff was plate. being thrown in the river, and now everyone wants to <laughs> no. dig up all of their um, all the, sets, uh, the sets. You know, everything from this is the way it was done to now, if it's pressed with something, it's authentic. Yeah. Uh, you know, to you know the birth of birth of the computer when it was all new, and we all made boring circles and boxes and lines because that's what you could do. Okay. To where people had a real grasp of the machine, and it completely you you simply cannot tell who did what, when on what media. Um, so you think the future is going to be more of this hands-on hipster stuff? I think I think I think what's going to happen, and and you know what I what I encourage people to do is that you know if you wanted to work in an agency, that's cool. Work at an agency if that's where your head's in that that's great. But also understand that. The modes of distribution, the modes of production exist where you can work on your own or you can work with a few people. You can work in a virtual studio uh, format uh, and you can, you can reach a lot of people out there. Um, and so if there's something that you want to do that's unique, that incorporates design, that, you, that, that, that you're motivated, you're the client, you want to get it out there, you want to produce it, then you can do that. So you can go and you can do commission work. You can do work that can be of your own invention, uh, that comes from your own desire, uh, that comes from your own experience. Um, and that all of these modes of technology, whether it's letterpress or, or um, the computer or, or it's a, you know, doing UX, UI, that it's... They're just simply, they're, they're simply, it's like using color. It's like using type. They each suggest different things. So if I want to communicate something in a specific way, 
maybe it's going to go, I'm going to go and try to hunt down some, some wood type. Maybe I'm going to go down to Nashville. I'm going to go to Hatch. I'm going to, you know, get these blocks of wood pieces of type that I saw a while ago. They're just amazing. Or maybe I'm going to go and I'm going to get some elaborate emboss, deboss plate made for something. Or maybe it's something that has to be online. Or maybe it's something that can only go on a mobile device. The technologies help to distribute it in certain ways, and they help the the person using using it to understand the design in certain ways. So it's a it's a form of communication. It's it's a language again, like color, like sound, um, the typefaces that we use, the type of paper, all of that stuff, all has to go and serve the design. It just simply can't be. Oh yeah, I'm going to do UI UX. Ergo, I'm cool. I'm going to do, um, um, you know, letterpress, and it's going to be it's pure, it's real. Um, you know, if we want to go do pure and real, then we should all go get burnt sticks and you know, and draw on rocks. Or so what you're like saying that. is that right now we're living in a golden age. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, I would say, it's, I would say, it's 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 a renaissance because all forms and modes of production. Are, are reachable and achievable. And so once you have that, which is amazing, what do you do with it? Do you use it just because you can use it? Or do you think about ways that you can take advantage of these things in the most effective way possible? And that to me is the real, real power of it. That's where you know, skill and experience come in. That I would just not use a particular form of technology or media just because I could, um, I would do it because it communicates in every bit of its form, visual, uh, textural, whatever, it communicates an idea. I think that's a good place to stop. Awesome. Thank Thanks you. Luck, okay, take care. Good luck, kids. Play safe. Typecasting machines. I think we couldn't remember that. Couldn't remember it. Typecasting machines. Absolutely. So I've had to hang on this up. This has been a production by GDC Manitoba. Andrew Boardman, Evan Coos, and me, Leif Norman. Music for Oots has been supplied by The Scissor Kicks. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and I hope we all learn something. Why Dyson needs to make wonky shapes with funky colors. No, that, that's, that's it. It's just a wonky widget. Oh, yeah. It's a wonky widget. Dyson wonky widget. It's <laughs> 800.